exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In World News Today, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton joined European and Arab foreign ministers in London today for a conference to discuss the future of Libya, according to NPR. The ministers agreed that it was time for Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi to step down, but told reporters they had not discussed arming his opponents if he fails to do so. In national news, Walmart got a sympathetic hearing from several Supreme Court justices today as the retailers sought to prevent female employees from bringing the largest class actions sex discrimination lawsuit in history, according to Reuters. More than a million female employees accused Walmart of paying women less and giving them fewer promotions. On Exposure tonight, we'll be talking about energy, the environment, and the arts. Guests include MSNBC's Dylan Radigan about Steel on Wheels, a three-day energy summit he will host to discuss the U.S.'s energy policy and the end of dependence on foreign oil. Also on the show, we will talk about the operatic and theater the theatrical performances of The Grapes of Wrath, which will be held at MSU in the next two weeks. We'll also be talking with renowned world music percussionist Ciro Baptista. But in the studio, local and national leaders uh, in the environment are here to talk about MSU's Clean Energy Forum and how MSU can lead the state and country towards a low-carbon future. Welcome to the show, everyone. So to start off, can you guys go around and introduce your names, um, when, what organization you're with, and just give us a little brief summary of your organization? Um, sure. My name is Michaela Howard, and I am at the organizer with the Sierra Student Coalition working on the MSU Beyond Coal campaign. We are a student group at MSU working to urge President Simon to commit to moving MSU off of coal and um, transition to 100% clean energy. Thanks, and I'm Mike Johnson. I'm with uh, Greenpeace's Quit Coal campaign uh, as a senior analyst. Um, and likewise, I'm here to talk about the transition of uh, MSU from fossil-based forms of uh, energy to renewable forms of energy generation. So it's a pleasure to be here. I'm Douglas Jester. I'm here representing Lansing Can Do Better, a coalition of individual citizens and organizations in the Lansing area. We were formed a couple of years ago uh, initially in response to a proposal by the Lansing Board of Water and Light to build a new coal plant, which we opposed uh, successfully. Uh, we continue as a group to work uh, toward an energy efficient and renewable energy future in the Lansing area. And we're enjoying the opportunity to collaborate with the folks at Michigan State University uh, who have similar interests. Hi, I'm Sean Hubbardy from Lansing Community College. I'm the lead faculty of the Alternative Energy Program, and essentially the Alternative Energy Program uh, is focused more, more so around the built environment than, say, uh, the, uh, the grid-sized you know, wind and solar applications. So we focus mostly on building energy efficiency. Very cool. So, Michaela, I guess um, I have a question for you. Um, can you tell us about how this event will, will take place? Um, it'll be Thursday at 6.30 p.m., at 105 South Kedzie Hall. Um, tell us a little bit about what's going to happen at this event. Sure. So um, so first I'll start off by telling you a little bit about uh, the campaign that we've been working on on campus and why we decided to have this forum. So, um, so MSU Beyond Coal got started about a year ago and um, to kind of rally support across campus among students and faculty um, to show support for moving off of coal at MSU. And um, in the meantime, we've collected a, a nearly 5,000 petitions from students. Uh, we've also gotten endorsements from dozens of student groups on campus, um, and we've really raised awareness on campus about uh, the problems associated with coal. And so we felt like we needed to uh, use this opportunity to bring experts on energy efficiency and clean energy to actually start the discussion on campus of how we can get off of coal and what we can be doing instead. So that's, that's what we really want to show with this Clean Energy Forum on Thursday. So I know MSU has, we're now in talks for our energy transition, trying to get off of coal here at MSU. 
about last month I had someone from the Office of Campus Sustainability on to talk about that. And I'm curious, have, have those that are in this local community, have you um, been an active participant in those talks um, regarding MSU's energy transition? Just really quickly, um, so MSU Beyond Coal, as well as the other student group helping us with the event, MSU Greenpeace, are both um, have student representatives on this the steering committee that the university started. So that's um, really exciting um, to be a part of that, and and um, we've been you know really enjoying being able to participate in that process. And the um, university uh, clean energy transition team have come to Lansing Can Do Better meetings and presented. Uh, the activities that are planned there, uh, providing us an opportunity to collaborate. And we're beginning to look at uh, opportunities to have the Lansing community and Michigan State University work together. Cool. So my next question for all of you guys, and feel free to jump in whenever you have something to say, what are your big ideas that, that some of you may have to bring to the table as we discuss um, a low carbon future? I know, for example, Sean, you, you have done some projects. For example, I think you, you um, have a lawnmower that is, that is generated by solar power. I've heard you know, about the lawnmower. Things, things like that that you guys may um, be able to bring to the table. Uh, well, for me, it's, um, it's really about, for me, it's all about energy efficiency. So I see uh, energy efficiency as the first and most important renewable energy. Um, I think there's a big opportunity for... Um, you know, all buildings, but buildings on, on this campus um, in particular, uh, to go through a transformation uh, to pay a little closer attention to uh, the renewable resources around them, like wind and solar and um, being able to uh, uh, manipulate building controls so that they're both uh, extremely uh, comfortable to humans and also energy efficient. Um, this is Douglas Jester. I have observed a program on campus for a number of years to do what's called commissioning buildings. This is essentially creating controls so that energy-consuming things run when they're needed and don't run when they're not needed, and do so at intelligent times as well. Um, and the buildings that have been commissioned in that way have, are already saving 10 to 15 percent of their energy consumption. Not all the buildings have been done, done yet, but I know the university has plans. So I think that's a really laudable uh, process. Over a longer period of time, uh, deeper construction kinds of projects will be needed to increase energy efficiency. And I think if the university approaches it with the kind of intelligence that they have, uh, landscape architecture uh, for the campus and things of that sort, we'll see a really radical reduction of energy consumption uh, with at least the same functionality and maybe better uh, than we've had. And then there are lots of technologies coming now for renewable energy. Um, we have in this state a number of companies that are making building integrated renewable energy technologies. Um, I think most people have probably heard about solar shingles. And if you can imagine all of the green shingles on the buildings on this campus being able to produce energy uh, that could really be quite a bit. Uh, there are also is a company in Ann Arbor working on building integrated wind generation. So it's not a turbine on the building, it's the flow of air past the building that generates the power. So there are lots of really interesting possibilities for this campus. So Mike Johnson, you are the senior coal analyst for Greenpeace USA, so you work at the national level. I'm curious, through your work um, what have been your biggest hopes um, that you've kind of discovered through your work, and what do you think are our biggest challenges at the national level to get to that low-carbon future? Sure. Well, I think the, the biggest hopes are that the te technologies that have already been proven um, are really able to get out into uh, onto campuses and into communities across the country. What we've seen is a challenge of a lot of regulations by um, by the opposition in this point, you know, in this case, uh, by the Republican Party. Uh, we see a lot of money being pumped into electoral politics, and that's pretty much guaranteed a lot of more of the same, uh, a lot of coal, a lot of nuclear, um, in a time when we urgently need new solutions. Uh, as, the, as science tells us, we really have about a few years left to stabilize our emissions and then begin to drastically reduce them. So. 
that's really part of what we're about here on uh, the campus at MSU is to uh, shepherd in that transition with a sense of urgency um, in a way that really students can be able to see something as they before they graduate um, and also are as they get into the real world are able to go out in the job force with confidence with skills that um, you know enable them to participate in the green economy and uh, to do that with confidence uh, as they see some of these jobs being created here in East Lansing. So how long do you think it's going to take for at least your personal goals to get to that low carbon uh, future? Um, what do you think it's going to take um, to be able to reach those goals, either at a national level or a local level? I, I would just say um, that here on campus, um, I really think what it will take is just a firm commitment from the university that um, this is something that we, we should strive for, um, getting off of coal and, and switching to 100% clean energy. If we don't make that commitment, then we won't, we won't actually get there. Um, it, it, it's something that we should be working towards um, as, you know, as a whole at the university and put everything we have into it. Well, in the studio is Mike Johnson, Senior Coal Analyst for Greenpeace USA, uh, Michaela Howard, or, excuse me, Howard from MSU Beyond Coal, Douglas Jester from Lansing Can Do Better, as well as Sean Huberty from LCC's Alternative Energy Engineering and Technology Program. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And the MSU Clean Energy Forum will be held this Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at 105 South Kedzie Hall, and you can hear more from these speakers on Thursday. Again, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Impact Exposure, Emmanuel Berry, the nuclear crisis in Japan and continued unrest in the Middle East is causing people to reevaluate America's energy future. Through the program Steel on Wheels, MSNBC's host Dylan Radigan will be holding a three-day energy summit to discuss the future of America's energy. He's here today uh, to discuss that uh, with us. Welcome to The Impact. Hey, how are you? Good morning. Good morning. I'm good. All right. Um, so the summit is part of your Steel on Wheels tour where you essentially take your new show on the road and uh, create a space for dialogue about some of the most pressing issues facing America. What inspired you to cover energy as your next topic? I think you know it's pretty simple. We're faced. We were coming out to the to the south and southeast and Midwest in March anyway, mm -hmm. as part of the Steel and Wheels tour, as you were just describing. You turn on the TV, and you have Japan and the Middle East in front of you. We only have a few problems in this country that are costing us trillions of dollars a year, which is the scale of the problems we're suffering from. Mm -hmm. The healthcare system is one of them. The banking system is one of them. The military is, uh, and the defense complex is one of them. And energy is one of them. Half of our trade deficit is energy. Obviously, the military Pentagon budget is hugely influenced by our desire to control and, 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 and influence energy assets around the world. And at the same time, we have huge coalitions of both industrialists and environmentalists who are and, and, and war veterans who are desperate to come up with a mission to the moon level ambition to free America from energy dependency around the world, period. Mm -hmm. And... The news is so compelling that instead of going out and saying, let's say I, Dylan Radigan, I'm like, oh, well, we need to deal with this problem. Who cares? The <laughs> problem that is presented to us is this energy problem. Let's get after it. Yeah. And, and again, having already done the health care legislation to some, you know, mixed review, mm -hmm. Same with the banks. I don't know that we have the political appetite in this country to deal with those issues right now, but I, I'm hopeful that we do have that appetite for energy. So do you think or, or at least hope that the, that the unrest in these situations, that what people are seeing on TV is going to inspire um, you know, both regular Americans and politicians to actually address these concerns? That's my hope. That's my hope. I've got an ongoing conversation with Senator Tom Coburn from Oklahoma on all these issues, and I know he's very concerned about it. Mm -hmm. And there's a, 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 a string of others, both Democrats and Republicans. The battle lines ultimately get drawn between the oil companies who benefit from the current construction, 
and the banks who provide them financial resources and 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 and, and give them forward. They give them let them basically populate a futures game. What's going to happen to oil and energy? Um, but everybody else, I think, has a compelling reason to address the problem. So, uh, and, I, and I'm hopeful that we'll do it this year. Hopefully. Um, so for your summit, you've gathered a, a bunch of different people to discuss energy future. Um, so who exactly do you have coming and what types of things are they going to discuss or talk about? Sure. Well, on the shows, we had everybody from the mayor of Los Angeles to the former CEO of Shell Oil, John Hoffmeister, will talk about how, what a bunch of energy hogs we are as a country, and it's not just in the sense of how much we burn, but how much we burn and waste. Mm-hmm. Our efficiency ratio is 35%. It's just terrible. Our power generation facilities, 65% of what we, the coal or the natural gas or the water that we burn, goes away as radiant heat. Our power grid is from, you know, 50 years ago. It's all this, this nonsense. And it need, that ultimately needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And so the panel itself, Thursday night, will, will have, um, James Wolsey, who used to run the CIA, who can address the security issues. Ashwin Medea, who runs Vote Vets, which is a soldier organization, a nonprofit for veterans of the Iraq War, that is basically for energy independence. The head of the National Resources Defense Council out of Southern California is advocating, obviously, climate concerns and um, environmental issues. And then T. Boone Pickens who obviously is a strong advocate not only of natural gas, but of all of America's domestic resources, and we need to just overcome the challenge of doing it safely. So what are some of these uh, potential solutions that people um, might be suggesting? Well, I mean, one, I think the, the efficiency issue is going to be brought up substantially, simply because we're so inefficient and we burn so much, and there's so clear technologies, whether it's the 90% efficiency ratios in Japan or 85 efficiency ratios in Germany, the fact that, that our power generation is at 35% is an incredible opportunity. Yeah. The same can be said for the inefficiency of the overland transportation network in terms of the, the, the amount of fuel that we burn to move trucks, buses, etc., which is why we've got the mayor of Los Angeles on who's converted everything in L.A. to natural gas because you can use a centralized filling station when you're using a municipal fleet like that mm-hmm. as opposed to having gas pumps everywhere. And the air quality and everything in Los Angeles has improved substantially as a result uh, of that. So anyway, one, there'll be a lot of talk about what the, the move of the efficiency curve where we have massive opportunities. Two, there'll be a lot of talk about how to frack safely. Can you frack safely, which is the mechanism by which they get natural gas out of the ground. Mm-hmm. So we know. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building. Without all that smoking. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. Sorry for the technical interruption. 
Um, we are now going to go back to Emmanuel Berry. She is uh, the senior guest list producer for um, The Guest List. And we are going to finish up her interview with MSNBC's Dylan Radigan about Steel on Wheels. Here it is. We're having gas pumps everywhere, and the air quality and everything in Los Angeles has improved substantially as a result uh, of that. So anyway, one, there'll be a lot of talk about what, the, the move of the efficiency curve where we have massive opportunities. Two, there'll be a lot of talk about how to frack safely. Can you frack safely, which is the mechanism by which they get natural gas out of the ground. Mm-hmm. So we know we have this massive, I mean, we just have so much of this natural resource. It's just, I don't know that we've invested enough to do it in a way that's, that is safe enough for people. And so we just have to figure that out, get those thresholds defined, achieve those thresholds, and, and, and look to integrate more of that, in my opinion, as a bridge fuel to ultimately a, a goal that, you know, that we all have to get all of our energy from above the surface of the earth as opposed to below the surface of the earth. But short-term efficiency, natural gas, and literally just a plan to reflect more of the real cost of a, cost of ga- of a gallon of gasoline. Mm-hmm. Because right now, because there's un- this unholy alliance between business and state where the oil companies can basically convince the government to fund the military operations necessary to secure the oil but not charge them for it, mm-hmm. or yeah. the same for the environmental damage, and as a result, they can artificially represent gasoline as cheaper than it really is. And does, this, does the same thing actually... incentive to look for anything else. Is, is the same thing true with other um, sources like coal, where the price isn't actually reflected in um, how much? Absolutely. No, exact same thing. And, so the, and that goes, that's true in too many things. The, the, the problem with the free market in America is not that the free market is evil or bad, in my opinion, but that the free market is a disaster if you allow price manipulation. Mm-hmm. And so if I allow the cost of coal to be represented as cheap when it's expensive, considering the number of people that die every year getting it out of the ground and the level of toxicity that it introduces onto the earth. Yeah. Now, if I, you want to reflect that price, so for instance, if you do that with gasoline, well, the real cost of gasoline is probably 12 or $13 a gallon. Yeah. So we're not now, seeing... I, now I have a real marketplace because now all the replacement energies... That right now, let's say, cost between four and nine dollars a gallon. That are very unattractive because of the artificially low price of oil, because of the unholy alliance between business and state, between the oil companies and the government, and the off-balance sheet accounting with the Pentagon. Right? Mm-hmm. That all of a sudden you don't have the opportunity to to do that because the market is so sluggish because it's being it's like it's like a, it's being given an, an anesthetic almost. To, 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 it's being given a, it's like a drug. Give them cheap. The cheap oil keeps them from being motivated to make the necessary changes. So, I guess, what is your overall goal, or what do you hope to achieve with this summit besides just making people aware of of the things that are so going on? So, my hope is that we'll be able to then launch into a campaign over the next six months, where we are able to escalate both editorially with political pressure and with a policy debate around solving this problem to try to identify a coalition of the willing in the political universe that are, that are willing to take up a coherent plan. I do know that Tom Coburn is going after the ethanol subsidies this week in D.C. And that's certainly somebody who's, uh, who has my attention right now in terms of being invested in, in the issue of price manipulation between the government and the energy companies. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dylan. Thank you for giving me a piece of your morning. <laughs> You're welcome. That was All Dylan right. Radigan. Uh, his Steel on Wheels episode on addressing the energy crisis will be airing tomorrow on MSNBC. You're listening to Impact Exposure. This is Emmanuel Berry. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. This weekend, MSU Opera Theater will perform The Grapes of Wrath, and next weekend, the Department of Theater will perform The Grapes of Wrath. In the studio is Juliana Kartzmas and Brandon Manson with MSU Opera Theater to talk about the opera Grapes of Wrath. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's nice Hi, to be Emily. here. So first off, 
MSU Upper Theater will perform, along with the Department of Theater, um, two weekends in a row, or one after the other, I should say. So why is there this collaboration this year? I think the university got together, and they, um, they wanted to celebrate the Steinbeck novel, and they saw that there were a lot of ties between what Steinbeck was trying to say about the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl and what is currently going on in Michigan. Um, a few other departments got together and brought forward their own professors or people who were just really interested in, in having a say as to how their specific um, mean of study kind of gave a uh, look into how everything was relevant. Um, so it was a way for us to kind of collaborate between the two departments and then also to bring this story to life and back into the thoughts of Michigan. And what parts do you guys play? Um... I'm uh, portraying Tom Jode, um, who was just recently released from prison. Um, he killed a guy in a bar fight um, after being attacked himself, uh, couldn't keep his temper under control. Um, and you kind of see that resurface uh, throughout the opera where he's trying to say, um, you know, his, his line that he keeps, that keeps recurring is, you know, I keep my nose clean in trouble, which is he's trying to be a, a new guy, but... Um, He's put in so many situations of, of high stress that eventually um, he's no longer able to hold it together. And you'll see that throughout the opera. I play the role of Rosa Sharon, or Rosa Sharn as her family refers to her. And Rosa Sharn is about 17 years old. She is married and pregnant, and eventually her husband leaves her, and she gives birth to a stillborn baby. So there are kind of a lot of... Um, shocking things about her specifically that have really kind of enraged people in the last 72 years since the book came out. And it's it's definitely interesting portraying her and seeing what Steinbeck um, was trying to convey with her character. Well, let's talk about those, you, you say, some issues or controversies. Can we talk about the controversy of the book and, and um, how that spilled into making of the, the movie that they did? Sure. Uh, I know that when the film came out starring Henry Fonda, um, the Oklahomans didn't actually want there to be filming of that uh, movie. And actually the filmmakers for a while, they went in and they were taking footage of Oklahoma and they told people in specific communities that they were making a documentary called Route 66 about Route 66. And what is an, until the very last moment that they actually slapped on the name The Grapes of Wrath? Um, because a lot of people were still very touchy about the fact that it was a contemporary novel. It was pretty close to being a contemporary film. And a lot of those wounds hadn't really healed yet. So can you talk about some of the themes of gra Grapes of Wrath and how they are relevant to today? There's so much that can be said for humanity and the lack of what we're seeing in the world today. Um, you know, there's human suffering all over the world, and it seems that no matter how much we try to help, we can never do enough. And um, in Grapes of Wrath, you actually see these government camps where they provide hot showers and <clears throat> housing, but they don't provide food. And food is crazy inflated with the price. And I think we think that we've gotten past that, but at the same time, it's all the bottom line is the bottom line is cl cliche as that sounds, but I mean, that extends all the way up to the highest reaches of, of our structure of government. I don't want to make any political statement, but it's just the structure of, of what it is and the system. Um, I think definitely is highlighted there when you see the Jode family pull into this government camp and there's just widespread starvation and suffering. There are so many scenes from, the opera that have really resonated with me. Uh, there's a part where, pretty much at the beginning of the book, the Jode family is getting ready to move to California as their land has been seized back by the bank. It's completely uncroppable. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. And as they're moving out to the land of milk and honey and they're looking forward to all of these wonderful things to come, they come across this ragged man. And he essentially just tells the family and the rest of the people that are camping on the side of the road that he is 
coming back from California and he's going home to starve in his own backyard and he talks about how his family has passed away and there's a line in the book where this ragged man he describes the the scent of death by degree and all in you know, just really horrific imagery and he says um I can't tell you what the coroner said. My two kids died of heart failure. And what I find really phenomenal about the opera is the librettist, Michael Corey, takes it one step further. And so the ragged man's last line is, they died of heart failure. But my question is, whose? And the scene kind of ends. And for us on stage, and I know for the audience, it's that moment of thinking, who could have fed those children. And so we look at a lot of the social issues um, that went in during that time where food was being burnt because they were trying to stabilize prices. Um, and essentially, uh, potatoes were being thrown in rivers and the rivers were being contaminated with toxins um, just so people wouldn't eat all of the extra food. And so it's really scary to think that this, you know, this was within the last century in our country, some of these things that were happening. It's not the kind of stuff that you learn in textbooks either. Exactly, exactly. And even I got the annotated version of the novel, and there were so many things that Steinbeck just alluded to that I was so glad I had an annotation for. He mentioned very, very briefly the slaughtering of pigs, and it wasn't until I flipped to the end of the book and I was reading the annotations that I learned that in 1933, over six million pigs were slaughtered and their meat was just left to rot while people were literally right outside of these slaughterhouses starving to death. And it was just to stabilize prices. So talk about what type of preparation um, it took to prepare for these rules and understanding the novel. I mean, did you read the book as well? And, and talk, also talk about um, The Grapes of Wrath and Word and Song and how that helped you connect to this upcoming performance this weekend. Yeah, I, preparing for the role, I mean, you got to learn your notes and your rhythms and um, just that in itself, incredibly complex score. I mean, it's it's harder than anything I've ever learned in my entire life and likely will be for a long time. I mean, it, it is a thick score and there's so much going on, but it is so brilliant. I mean, he'll take a, a two-note motive, basically just an interval, and he'll expound upon it and expound upon it. And you find... Um, <laughs> During one of the, the zitz probes uh, with our rehearsals with the orchestra, we counted up over 150 or 160 direct repetitions of uh, melodies or motives just within the opera. Um, there were 68 at the end of Act 1 when we took our first break. Um, so you have to learn all that stuff. And then once you finally feel secure and we started staging it, you know, you just find... And we're still discovering things even in our dress rehearsals where, oh, you know, here's here's a moment that, you know, Tom and Rosa Charn can have. And it's just a continuing process of learning and discovering. And it's it's been absolutely incredible as a singer and an actor and as, uh, as a person to be able to go through something like that. So the composer was able to come here and work with you guys. What was that like? It was one of the more phenomenal weeks. <laughs> Um, so he was here for a week in residency, and I think I think we all had this impression at first that it was going to be a time where we kind of sat back and we listened to someone talk and we took notes. Um, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't have been more wrong. The first night that he came here, we all went out to dinner together and we were crammed in one little tiny booth, and he spent three hours just I mean pouring his heart out to us answering questions and, left and right oh yeah and you know we kept apologizing for asking so many questions and he was just he's just such a wonderful person and during the week he really inspired us and instilled this idea of human kindness and how through the arts we can really affect people and we can make things better by giving people just either, you know, two hours on a Friday night to just sit back and relax or to give them permission to go out and do something beautiful the next day. And 
it was just, you know, it really was phenomenal. And he was the kind of guy who said, hey, I have a lunch break. Anyone want to come get food with me? And so we all felt like we gained a best friend. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we all feel so personally connected to him. We're all Facebook friends with him now, and uh, <laughs> he's pretty active on Facebook. I mean, he's always popping up on my news feed, and, he, you know, it's so cool to see someone with that amount of genius in his brain and the, write the music that he does. And the thing you come away with more than anything is what a wonderful person, you know. Just here's a guy who his greatest passion in life is to see, is to make other people passionate. Well, in the studio, I'm talking with Juliana Kartsimus and Brandon Manson, and they are part of the cast of Grapes of Wrath as part of the MSU Opera Theater. Um, performances will be held this weekend, and next weekend the Department of Theater will perform the Grapes of Wrath as a straight play. Can you talk about the Grapes of Wrath in Word and Song project and how that helped you reach out to the community and learn more about what this, what this, what was originally a novel really means? I think the project was one of the things that most helped me prepare for the opera. We found out over Christmas break that Ricky and Gordon, the composer of the opera, was going to be here in residency and was actually going to play piano for these two performances that we were giving. And we were so excited that we were going to have this opportunity to collaborate with the Department of Theater and Dr. Anne Felino-White, who is directing that. And it was, it was kind of interesting. We had all kind of known what was going to happen, but really a lot of magic came together right at the end when we just had one rehearsal where we really put everything together. And so we interspersed scenes from the opera, scenes from the play, and then lines from the book. And we told the story in about 45 minutes, kind of just a, a blow-by. Um, but then there was a panel of MSU professors that opened up a discussion to the audience afterward and kind of just... Uh, facilitated and led the audience through a series of questions. And I think what was so fascinating about that was our first performance was on a really cold wintry night uh, in Grand Rapids, and we went to the United Auto Workers Hall. And to see such a mix of people, some guys who had just gotten off work or, you know, were just coming downstairs from their jobs and um, were really, really interested and some of the questions that people asked or some of the comments, there were men that were really interested to know how a bunch of 20-something-year-olds found this relevant. And I think that was kind of shocking to me to actually, like, that was the first time that I sat back and really thought about its relevance. Um, also, there were so many interesting things. There was a woman on the panel who I believe is an MSU professor in migrant studies, and she talked about a lot of personal stories with her family and how even to this day, I think she was bringing out statistics from 2006, how there are many migrant workers in Michigan who still don't have running water on some of the farms that they work for and how we sometimes, you know, we go to the cafeterias at school and there are Michigan apples and all those things. And I think that you know, Michigan has really, really loved recently buying local products, and I think that's great. But there's the other side of, I'm not sure people are aware that there still are migrant workers working on some of these farms, and some of them, their children aren't getting the opportunities to go to school every day or even, you know, at certain times during seasons, they're working on the farm as opposed to going to school and that they're not necessarily living in the conditions that we would consider to be good conditions. And the other thing that really was, uh, I guess, kind of a, a kick in the butt for us to hear was, all, you know, we hear all these things, and she was telling us stories about how there are numerous families living in this, you know, basically like a tiny apartment building, you know, just overcrowded conditions, and it's the kind of thing where you just kind of bury your head in the sand because, we don't want to acknowledge that it happens, but in the back of our mind, we know that's exactly what's going on. We need to help. And in the economic climate that we're in right now in Michigan, everybody's kind of fending for themselves and we got to get out of that mentality. And it's so hard to pull ourselves out. And that's another thing that you just try to wrap your arms around. That's another big thing that um, I think Steinbeck was trying to talk about too. Now, Juliana, you actually invited Governor Snyder to see the opera this weekend. Yes. <laughs> um, can you read some of what you wrote to him? I started by 
explaining to Governor Snyder uh, a lot of the themes of Grapes of Wrath that had hit home with me and some of the history that I learned uh, from being involved in this show and from the book and from the Grapes of Wrath project. And I just concluded with saying that the Grapes of Wrath has reminded a lot of us that although Americans have the right to build their own wealth, we still should take care of one another. And it isn't something that can just be mandated through taxes. Uh, it needs to be something that is taught and exemplified. Um, and then I said to the governor, I deeply wish that you will come to see this production and to spread this message, that our country needs leaders that are willing to show people what love is, not just policy. In the face of so many struggles with our economy and so much animosity toward any changes being made, we need to be reminded to love one another and take care of one another. Uh, so I just concluded with saying, please help us to open the eyes of our community to the many needs of our people and the great joy there is in helping and loving our neighbors. Well, in the studios, Juliana Kartsimus and Brandon Manson, they are part of the cast of Grapes of Wrath. MSU Opera Theater will perform the Grapes of Wrath this weekend, and next weekend the Department of Theater will perform a straight play of Grapes of Wrath. Juliana and Brandon, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Thank Emily. You, Emily. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. On the phone is Ciro Baptista. He's a six-time Grammy Award-winning artist and renowned percussionist. He'll be performing April 6th at the Wharton Center's Paysant Theater. Welcome to the show, Ciro Baptista. Thank you very much to have him in your show. <laughs> so you are a native of Brazil. Talk about the music that you grew up with. Well, uh, I grew up uh, with Brazilian music, you know, uh, you know, I come from a place in Brazil that have rainforest, you know, and more than the music was the sound of the environment that surround me, you know, uh, the sounds of the rainforest, the rain in the water and the birds, the winds, you know. That's all was music for me when I was a kid. <laughs> but for sure, Brazilian music is my... My my roots you know, is in is in Brazil, but I'm living in America for 30 years now, and I think my heart is belong here too. So, do you get to perform all over the world? I was able to sample um, and listen to some of your music um, with one of your bands, Banquet of the Spirits, and it seems to you take music from all over the world. So not just Brazil, but there's some African influences. Um, talk about that. Yeah, you know, like I think uh, uh, because the nature of that my career, you know, uh, I, I was very lucky to play with for musicians that, you know, like for Paul Simon or for Herbie Hancock or Sting, and these guys they go all over the planet, and I was lucky to be with them, and I went to many places, and everywhere I went, you know. I had this strong, besides the, the, the influence I had from their music, you know, and plus the, these many countries that I could see and listen to the beautiful music they make. And then, uh, you know, the Banquet of the Spirits, that's what it is. It's like a melting pot of all these influence, you know, today. Uh, no, we have so much information. And then I, I think we, I, <laughs> bucket of the spirits, you get like all, all this music that I, I experienced and put in the blender and made a juice. That's what we are. <laughs> so on your website, it says that you form your band, Bacon of the Spirits, around the concept of cultural cannibalism. So by cultural cannibalism, do you just kind of mean a melting pot of sounds and influences? Yes, exactly. You got it. Uh, and I mean, uh, in the 30s, they had this cultural movement in Brazil. Uh, they trying to explain why Brazil is the way it is. And 
And this is anthropophagia. That was the name. Anthropo is people, and phagia is eating. And and is that no? Like Brazil, we ate the American Constitution, the French Revolution. We we ate uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Joe Coltrane, <laughs> and we ate that and digest that and create our own culture uh, from that. Is a, is a concept, uh, the anthropophagia. But it's very difficult for uh, uh, Americans to say this name. You know, it's, uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a Greek thing. Mm. And then uh, we did a banquet of the spirits. It's an easier <laughs> way to express the, this concept. So you've collaborated with Paul Simon, Sting, Yo-Yo Mob, Snoop Dogg, and Wynton Marcellus. So those artists span many, many genres. What is your favorite part of collaborating with various artists spanning those um, many different genres, from rap to classical to jazz? Yeah, that's a, uh, you know, it's a million-dollar question. I don't know, uh, because I'm not really a jazz musician, you know, but... Uh, Jazz, well, when I came to America, you know, in, in 1980, uh, jazz was uh, was like a family. They took me, <laughs> you know, they embraced me, and uh, I, I could jazz. Uh, I'm not really so familiar with the, the history of the jazz, and I don't know that many songs, but I know the... Uh, state of mind that jazz is and they they've been so good to me over the all the years now i learned so much through jazz jazz is a kind of this what we we're talking here is like a is a anthropophagic concept because jazz is not is a mixture of everything uh it's like miles davis used to say you no know, if you can tap your foot it's jazz Right, <laughs> and jazz is one aspect. But suddenly, I was involved with the projects with the classical music, and I think it's more because the way uh, I approach the the music, especially the percussion, that's the instrument. Instead of just, I love people who keep the time, but also like to orchestrate the environment, like a all these sounds that the, when I, I grew up, the, the sound of the rainforest, now I live in New York City, have the sound of the subway, the rhythm of the lights, and bring that to the music. And probably people, uh, I got involved with these people because they want that. No? So you're a percussionist. Where did you learn how to play percussion? Ah, that was is incredible because I, I was I was like elementary school, and I remember I had this fantastic teacher. You know, like, uh, everybody at that time was uh, learning. They, they were learning, like, singing these boring songs that I had in Brazil. But this teacher said, ah, you know, like, let's do a percussion band. We, but we don't have the instruments. We're going to invent the, <laughs> and create the instruments. And, and I remember my first instrument was a coconut. You know that brown coconut? Yeah. <laughs> you cut in the middle, take the meat out, and and polish, and there's a, you know, this sound. And I was so happy to you know to play with music with that and with the other, the other kids. You know, I this is fun, <laughs> and that's I think what get me started. You no. Know? Can you talk about your Sound of Community project? Oh yeah, the Sound of Community is a, is a new thing that we are doing now. Uh, I don't know, I have this idea that musicians sometimes, uh, the people love the music, but I don't know if they like much the musician. <laughs> Many times I, I, I listen, I see this situation, you know, like, oh, I love the music, but they don't want to really get involved. The musician is a kind of a, a weird thing in the community sometimes, you know? And then I see that also, you know, like uh, old people too, you know, like it's 
they, they always put in at the side, you know, people with the, the other disabilities. And then I, I, I want to do a show with all these different layers of the society that they are not, uh, no, like they have a problem with what is the status quo. And then we're going to do that. No, we are doing it. It's incredible that we're going to do like a choreography with wheelchairs. And then I'm going to, I'm already went to New York, uh, uh, Newark. And we did some workshops with, uh, with kids, there, underprivileged kids there. And they're amazing, like the swing they have. And then we want to do this performance uh, with that. You know? Then I have like uh, the old ladies playing at normal drums, and <laughs> we're working hard on that. You know? And it's great. It's a community, the sound of the community. So the Sound of the Community Project is reaching out to the community and, and taking those that are underprivileged or who have disabilities and bringing them to be a part of the music, whether it's playing music yeah. or, or being a part of the choreography. Wonderful. Yeah, that's it. Can you talk about the perception of or the industry of world music um, within the U.S.? I think we are living now very hard times for music. And... We don't know what really, what, where it's gonna go. No, the labels are not in a good situation, and uh, with the internet, and uh, I know that have like a side that could, could this could be very negative, but it's a transformation, no? And the transformation is is movement, and I think there's so many. Uh, uh, Great music is happening right now, you know? and I, especially this movement. Because when I came here, world music was starting, you know? and now we have even classical music that's involved with world music. And it's we are living in a time of transformation, and this is great, especially for the the kids that starting to get involved with the music because we have so many activities today that we do you know, by ourselves. It was a video game, it was a computer, we watch TV and all this technology and music is a very important thing to bring people together, to do something together. You know? Well, on the phone is Ciro Baptista. He is a six-time Grammy Award-winning artist and renowned percussionist. He'll be performing at the Wharton Center's Paysant Theater April 6th. For more information, you can go to whartoncenter.com. Ciro Baptista, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much to have me, and I hope I see you in the performance. All right. Well, thank you so much. Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. This week's Michigan Storytelling segment features Bonnie Campbell. She was a finalist for the Michigan, the National Book Award in Fiction, and she will be at Everybody Reads Bookstore and the Rally of Writers this weekend. Welcome to the show, Bonnie. Oh, great to be here. So what is the Rally of Writers, which will take place this weekend? It's a one-day writing conference of, um, I think, it's... It's going to be on the LCC campus. I'm not sure it's one of those camp, one part of their campus, but it's an all-day writing event with classes and speakers, people talking about writing, and lots of students go there. Students, people from the community, people who want to write, go to get inspired, um, just to get to get some energy to write what they need to write. And do you think that there's a lot of Michigan writers around these days? Oh, Michigan is home of many, many writers right now. 
Um, I don't know if it's because tough times, um, if during tough times we turn to art and literature, or if it's just because we live in a fabulously beautiful place that inspires us in general. But Michigan is filled with writers. So without further ado, would you be willing to read an excerpt um, from one of your short stories? Sure. Um, I'm going to read the beginning of a story called The Yard Man, and it's a very long story, um, but I'm just going to read a little piece of it. The Yard Man. He was standing in mud, leaning on his round-end shovel, when he saw the big orange snake folded on the rocks beside the driveway, its body as thick as his stepson's arm. Jerry dragged himself out of the waist-deep hole where he'd been digging around the drywell and moved along the side of the building, approached the rocks, heel-toe in his mud-caked work boots, trying to move silently in the overgrown grass. The snake was orange with red and gold, but close up its skin reflected green and blue as well. Strangely, the blue of his wife's eyes and the shiny coils of the snake suggested his wife's coppery hair. Jerry had seen garter snakes and blue racers and rat snakes here. He had saved the dozen papery skins he'd found and tacked them to the wall inside shed number five, which had recently developed a roof leak and would have to be cleaned out and burned down. But this snake was like no animal he'd seen, as brilliant as the orange butterfly weed that had shot up like flames along the property line a few weeks ago. The snake had a smooth head the size of a Yukon gold potato, and the look on the snake's face made it seem as if he were smiling in the sunshine. When Jerry was close enough, he reached slowly toward the nearest coil to touch it. The shriek caused the snake to uncoil and set out over the rocks, and it made Jerry stand up and knock his shovel into the side of the house where it chipped a clapboard. His wife, Natalie, stood frozen on the concrete step a few yards away, her jaw loose, her eyes bulging a little, her keys jangled as they hit the ground. The snake moved across the overgrown grass toward the flower garden old Holroyd's wife had planted. It was Holroyd who told Jerry the dry well was probably nothing more than a rusted 55-gallon drum of rocks buried outside the makeshift kitchen of the old construction office building where Jerry lived. As usual, Holroyd was right. Maybe Holroyd had been the one to bury it there 20 years ago. Jerry, his wife screamed, do something. Jerry watched the snake's middle part disappear under the garden flocks, then the hollyhocks. The snake was at least as long as Jerry was tall. Kill it, she shouted. Jerry, please. His stepson and stepdaughter appeared in the window, looking scared, although probably more by their mother's screaming than by a snake they couldn't see. Jerry picked up his shovel. As his wife of a year and a half had grown more unhappy with him, he tried to do whatever she wanted. Had she told him to go do the dishes, he would have wiped his hands on his jeans and gone inside to run soapy water, dry well or no dry well. He pursued the snake into the hollyhocks, raised the shovel high enough to slice its body clean through. He didn't know exactly what went on inside a snake's body, but he could imagine a man or a boy chopped in half, how the organs and intestines would fall out. Jerry hesitated, lost sight of the snake in some ground cover, and then saw orange and gold bunching up between the flower bushes. Okay, I'll stop there. And in the studio is Bonnie Campbell for the Michigan Storytelling segment. Now, Bonnie, what would, how would you describe, what are most of your stories about? You have um, your book, The American Salvage, um, was um, a finalist for the National Book Award in Fiction. Um, and you also have a book coming out this summer called Once Upon a River. What would you say most of your stories are about? Um, well, they're very, the two books are very different. Um, the, the book American Salvage is really a collection of stories about men and machines. Um, I was really interested in what was happening um, to men in Michigan because of the economic situation. And I specifically was interested in working class men. And I was seeing that um, the place that they had chosen for themselves in the world no longer existed. And I've noticed in my hometown, I'm from Kalamazoo, and I've noticed that um, 
a lot of men don't know where to go or what to do now. They don't know what to do next. They thought, you know, a lot of men committed themselves to a life of, um, you know, factory work or assembly work, and now that work doesn't exist. And I was interested to see how the situations of some people for whom moving into the 21st century was going to be very difficult. And I wanted to explore that in stories. Well, in the studio is Bonnie Campbell. She was a finalist for the National Book Award in Fiction. She's a Michigan writer. Where can people go for more information about your books? Oh, it's everywhere, all over the web. <laughs> come to, come to uh, Everybody Reads on Saturday, uh, Lansing's downtown bookstore. <laughs> All right. Well, in the studio is Bonnie Campbell for the Michigan Storytelling segment. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thank you, Emily. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. An exclusive podcast from Impact.